So far in the book of Acts, we've seen how the departure uh, of Jesus led to the arrival of the Spirit. And that the arrival of the Spirit actually gives evidence that God's plan of salvation is still on track from the Old Testament. At Pentecost, the Spirit was given, indicating that we've entered into a new era in salvation history. And with the giving of the Spirit, Jesus' disciples begin speaking in different tongues or in different languages of all those Jews who are coming in from around the world. And they begin to speak in their languages. And naturally, the question that gets asked is, well, what, in, what does this mean? What in the world does this mean? And so, Peter's answer to that question was, our, was the sermon last week that we, that we looked at for the majority of Acts chapter Two. And he says that it means that God the Father has raised Jesus, his son, from the dead. And that now Jesus reigns on the throne of David as both king of heaven and king of earth. So, what does this mean? It means that God the Father has made Jesus both Lord and Messiah, as Peter says in verse 36. And the only right response to the Lord and the Messiah is to repent and believe so that we may receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. As a result, we have one of the most successful sermons in all of Christian history. 3,000 souls. Wouldn't that be incredible? It's much like Jonah going to Nineveh, preaching, and then the whole city gets converted. So it seems. But right here, we have 3,000 souls added to the church in Jerusalem. And tonight, we get an inside look at the life and the practice of the early church. In fact, the first church. So let's read Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Now they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful hearts and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. I think the main idea of this text is that the community of the king is one committed to the glory of God and the good of one another. The community of the king is one that is committed to the glory of God and the good of one another. I think that's the point of the text. And this text we see really four characteristics of the community that ought to characterize our own church community. So four characteristics that we see in this early church that ought to characterize us as a church. The first thing that we see is that it's a converted community. It's a converted community. The second thing that we see is that it's a committed community. So not only is this a converted community, it's also a committed community. Number three, it's also a caring community. A converted community will commit itself to one another, and in particular to caring for one another. And then lastly, 
It's a compelling community. When a church lives like this, it draws people in. It draws them in. It's a compelling community. All four of these broad categories characterize the early church and ought to characterize us as a church as well. And so let's look at the first one. It's a converted community. Acts 2, 42 through 47 serves really as the first summary statement in the book of Acts. We see several of these summary statements given throughout the book uh, to conclude larger sections of the book of Acts. And they're helpful for really identifying which passages go together. Not only do they often conclude a section, but they will transition into the next section in the book. And this summary serves as that very thing. It serves as the conclusion to the introduction of the book, which we saw in chapters 1 and in chapter 2. And it also serves as the transition into the first major section focusing upon the early church in Jerusalem. That's going to run us up all the way through chapter 6. The first thing that we notice about the early church is that they were converted. After Peter preaches the gospel, he calls them to respond. Sure enough, they respond. Look at verse 41. So those who accepted his message were baptized. In verse 44, we're told that all the believers were together. The early church wasn't made up of just anybody that wanted to join. It wasn't made up of just fans of Jesus or even fans of his followers. It was made up of the converted, those who had accepted the message of the gospel. They were those who were converted. The doctrine of conversion speaks to our response to God's work of salvation in us. God gives us new hearts by his spirit, and we respond to the work of the spirit by repenting of our sins and trusting in Jesus. That repentance in faith, that is the doctrine of conversion. That's our response to God's work in us by his spirit. God's work in us by his spirit is regeneration. Conversion, the doctrine of conversion, is repentance and faith. It's our response to the work of the Spirit within us. So those who repented and believed in Jesus as both Lord and Messiah were members of the first church. This church is a community of the converted. And it's not until the Spirit is poured out that this community is created and established. The Spirit creates through what? The preaching of the gospel, right? We saw that long sermon from Peter last week, which in fact, it was only just part probably of the sermon that he actually gave. And yet the spirit creates through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is preached by Peter. The spirit gives new life, establishing the community of the converted. Without the spirit and without the gospel, we do not have this new covenant community. The Spirit creates this community. The gospel is the basis for this community. And the sign of this community is baptism. Baptism is the sign of this community. So how do you know who identifies with Jesus? Those who've gone public with their faith and they've been baptized. I love how one friend once put it. He said that the church is where the new covenant shows up on earth. And baptism is how an individual shows up as a new covenant member. The church is a believing community as well as a baptized community. 
And brothers and sisters, this is important for us because if we want this kind of community that we see right here in verses 42 through 47, well, then we must first respond like verses 38 through 41 as you read right there. We can only be a fruitful community if we are a forgiven community. One marked by regular repentance in faith. So what are some of the steps for us toward this kind of community? What are some of the steps? Well, the first one is repentance, as we see up there in verse 38. Repentance isn't just a one-time act that happens whenever you're saved. You repent once, and then, hey, you're good to go. Never have to repent again. That's not repentance, right? It is certainly a one-time act where, by which the Lord brings you into salvation. But after that, it's a regular ongoing attitude throughout your life. My former pastor in Louisville once put repentance like this. He said that genuine repentance is more fundamentally a matter of the heart's attitude towards sin than it is a mere change of behavior. It's more fundamentally a matter of the heart's attitude towards sin than it is a mere change of behavior. However, that attitude towards sin will inevitably change your behavior. There's no doubt about that. When your hatred for sin grows, you're going to be quicker to want to confess your sin and pursue Christ. One aspect of a repentant community is that they regularly confess their sin. Regular confession of sin. James tells us in James chapter 5, verse 16, to confess your sins to one another and to pray for one another so that you may be healed. But notice why confession is good right there. Did you pick up on that from James 5, 7, 16? Why is confession good? It's good because it brings healing to you. It brings healing. Who doesn't want to be healed? <laughs> Who doesn't want healing? As one early Christian once put it, confession is a balm for the wounded soul. It's like Neosporin on an open wound, right? And you put a Band-Aid over that Neosporin on that wound. Why do you do that? Because it allows for that healing process to be able to begin. When we confess our sins to the Lord, we're allowing that healing process to be able to begin because we're giving vent to the trouble of our soul. We're giving vent to our sin to the Lord. And there is a great promise for us from this. It's in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Greg's going to preach on it here in two weeks. He says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The hope of confession is a clean heart and forgiveness of sins. I'll take that any day of the week. And I hope that you would too. For many of us, confessing our sins to one another may not be natural, but you bet it's needed and necessary. It is needed and necessary for growth and godliness. And so as your relationships at OBC deepen, find one person outside of your spouse, if you're married, one person that you can trust that you regularly confess your sins to. 
one that's going to ask you how you're doing. And you're fine to be very open and honest with them. One who can pray with you about that sin in your life. Someone that you can repent and confess your sins to. It's through repentance that unity is fostered in the community of Christ. It's a humble thing to repent of your sins. When we don't, we're prideful. And so confess your sins to one another. When we confess sins, we're not trying to preserve a reputation. Instead, we're placing our trust in the reputation of God in Christ as the one who is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Friend, if you're weighed down by your sin and you long for that burden to be able to fall off your back, it can fall off tonight. It can fall off right now by repenting of your sin and trusting in Christ as your Lord and Savior who took that burden of sin upon himself and he paid for it so that your burden may now be light and his yoke is easy for you. He's the one who took the burden of sin on himself, who paid for it so that you don't have to be strapped with that burden, not just for the rest of your earthly life, but for eternity. Praise God for that. If you want to talk more about that, I would love to chat with you more about what that may entail and what it looks like to follow Christ in repentance and faith. I would love to have that conversation with you after this. And so come find me after the service. I would love to talk to you more about what that means to follow Christ in that way. The second step toward a converted community happens through our membership process. When someone wants to become a member, we schedule a member interview with them. And in that interview, we hear their testimony about how the Lord saved them. We hear them give the gospel so that they rightly understand what the gospel is. And the point of all that is that we want to be sure that as humanly possible, we know that they've accepted the gospel message and they can articulate it, right? We're wanting to be sure as humanly possible. We are not God. (laughs) I'm not saying that we will not get it wrong. We certainly may, and we certainly probably will. In every church that I've been a part of, we have certainly gotten that wrong. But as much as humanly possible, we want to try to make sure that they understand the gospel message and they can articulate it that they've been baptized, or if they need to be baptized, that they've done that. And why is that? Because the community of Christ is a believing community and a baptized community. You're seeing that right here in Acts chapter 2 with the very first church. We're seeking to model ourselves off of them. We do this to protect and to promote the unity of the church. We protect it by guarding it from those who may seek to undermine the ministry of the gospel. And then we promote it by adding those in whom we have Christ in common, those who are a part of God's family and are united in pursuing this kind of community in verses 42 through 47. This is why having a membership process is necessary and crucial for ensuring that this forgiven community is a spiritually fruitful community. Well, not only is this community of the king a converted community, But those who are converted will inevitably be committed to God's work in the church. This community of the converted will be a committed community. Point number two. Point number two. It's interesting that the next words after after Luke records that 3,000 people had accepted the message of the gospel, been baptized, and then added to the church, 
that there are these words in verse 42, right? We, we think that he would go elsewhere. And then he says this, they devoted themselves. Again, in verse 46, it says, they devoted themselves. That word devoted right there is speaking to holding fast to something. It's speaking to their commitment to certain things. They're committed. And it doesn't say that they're committed, right? That we're committed to providing a, a killer's kids program or to excellent music, a rock concert, or incredible social media package. As great as all of those things can be. That's not what we see as the priority of the early church. It says that they devoted themselves to five things. Verse 42, to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. I can't really do my fourth without getting my fifth there. I don't know what's up with my fingers. In verse 46, it says that they were devoted to meeting together in the temple, and they broke bread from house to house. Five things right there related to being devoted, a devoted community. Let's look at each of these. First, the apostles' teaching. This certainly included the sermon that Peter had just finished preaching, right? He is an apostle. It includes Christ having risen from the grave, now reigning on the throne of David as Lord and Messiah and King of heaven and earth. It includes that. It also includes everything else that Jesus had passed down to his apostles, to his disciples. It includes all of those teachings, both teachings that were written down and even oral teaching that he had given to them. To put it simply, the early church was devoted to God's word. That's, that's really what that's getting at. It's devoted to God's word. They had a commitment to content. Man, in a content-like culture, this doesn't seem like this is what's going to win friends and influence people into the church. But they were a group that was committed to content. The church is a content-committed people. There are a lot of good things that we could place at the center of our time together on Sundays. But at the center of our time is the Word of God. We just heard it read. You're spending the majority of your time hearing it preached. We prioritize the Word of God. And we spend the most of our time in it. It's this word that ultimately renews our minds. It revives our souls. And it teaches us and conforms us to the image of Christ. It sanctifies us to be more like Christ. We become like the one that we behold as we behold him in his word. That's what happens. In a day and age where most seem devoted to entertainment and clickbait content, God's people are content to be committed to the teaching of the apostles. The second thing that we see them committed to is fellowship. Fellowship. The word for fellowship is one that you might have heard of. It's koinonia. Koinonia. Often we think about fellowship as just kind of hanging out, but it's much more than just that. The word speaks really to partnership and participation toward a common pursuit, toward a common goal. And so koino, koine, if, you're, if you think of like koine Greek, koine just means common. It was the common Greek of the day. So koine, koinonia, just means that we have something in common. Fellowship is a partnership toward a common purpose, a common goal. And what's that common purpose? Well, from the context, it probably means, verses 44 and 45, where many participated in what? 
participated in sharing with those in need. It also includes the mission to be witnesses of Christ to the ends of the earth that we saw back in Acts chapter 1, verses 8, right? We're pulling in all of the context to understand what this common purpose, what this common goal of the church was. Now, it could mean a lot of different things biblically. It could mean the unity of the Spirit. We could go on and on and on that all of the New Testament speaks to. But first and foremost, it means a commitment to participating in glorifying Christ in everything that they did. Because it's ultimately Christ who is the one in whom and through whom they actually have all things in common. That is their commonality when everything else in their life compared to everybody else within the church is totally different. The one thing that they're going to have in common is Christ in making much of him. Their commonality is him. Our fellowship isn't ultimately based upon a common culture that we share. It's not based upon a personality trait or hobby. Ultimately, Christ is the ground and the goal of our fellowship. Because without having Christ in common, we can't hold all things in common. We must have him. Third thing that they devoted themselves to was the breaking of bread. Now, there is lots of debate as to what in the world that breaking of bread is really getting at, right? Is it speaking about the Lord's Supper? Is it speaking about the meal that preceded the Lord's Supper in the early church, as it was often practiced? We see similar wording in verse 46 that speaks to the, really the broader context of eating meals house to house and regularly doing that. Either way, both ideas are really speaking to those committed to one another. That's what they're getting at. In the Lord's Supper, for instance, we renew our commitment to Christ and to one another. That's why we'll often read the church covenant together. Why? Because the church covenant, it's a covenant-renewing document. Whenever we take the Lord's Supper as a covenant-renewing act, we've set aside promises that we've said that we're going to keep and hold to one another. And so when we read that church covenant with the Lord's Supper, we're vocalizing those very promises that we're going to seek to keep with one another. That's why we do that. Only those committed to the body can ultimately seek to keep those promises, right? They're a converted community and a committed community. All the promises that we make in the church covenant can only ultimately be kept by the body of Christ and to those who have sought, who have made a promise to keep them. Fourthly, last, or the second to last thing, the prayers. Now you'll notice that that word is plural, meaning multiple touch points of prayer throughout the week. So that includes prayer during the, the main gathering. We think of our own kind of Sunday gathering right now. We think of the prayers that were given in this, whether it's a pastoral prayer or uh, Tom who just prayed a minute ago, a prayer of praise. It also includes prayers throughout the week as they were gathered regularly to be able to pray. The early church was devoted to praying with one another. And this is why we spend significant time during the main gathering, during small groups, praying. Public prayer is just as important as private prayer. When we make our needs public as a church, we're making God's glory public whenever he responds and answers our prayers. A church that's committed to one another is a church that prays together. And brothers and sisters, who is someone in the church that you can regularly meet up with 
to pray together. Praying not only just for the needs in your own life, but also in the church's life. That when you pray together, you can use the apostles' teaching, God's word, to actually inform your prayers. When we pray the word of God, we're praying the will of God, not only over our own lives, but we're praying the will of God over the lives of one another. Who can you meet up with regularly to pray throughout the week? Including God's word in those prayers. As it's been said, prayer is an ordinary means to accomplish supernatural ends. A church committed to prayer is a church committed to seeing God glorified through those prayers. Finally, the fifth thing that they're devoted to is meeting together. Man, were they ever. A couple of things to notice in verse 46. Notice the frequency of their meetings. (laughs) It's just, I feel guilty even just like reading that verse. The frequency of their meetings. It says they met every day. That doesn't sound American. For early Christians, gathering every day was not unusual. Now, I know this may seem like a utopian vision of the church. Or it may seem, yeah, just ideal. And certainly, this is an incredible picture of the church. Matter of fact, it even foreshadows really kind of that end-time gathering. But it doesn't mean that the church won't have harder days. Whenever we read through the book of Acts, we see that the, church is, the hard days are coming for the church, even internally. There will be internal conflict. But certainly, their attitude toward one, or, one another is wanting to regularly meet together. Look at their attitude. Their attitude in verse 37, whenever they met together, was one of joy, sincerity of heart, praising God. We may wake up in dread to have to meet with the body of Christ every, like, every now and again. They're meeting every day, joyfully, sincerity of heart, praising God. Not so with these new Christians. Their agenda did not rule their attitude. It didn't rule their attitude. Instead, it was adoration for the Lord that drove them to gather. These kinds of meetings were both formal and informal. You may notice that right there. Where did they meet? They met in the temple, right? Because this is the first church. They're trying to meet somewhere that can hold all these people. The temple's the only place. So they met in the temple, formal gathering. Where else did they meet? house to house, informal gatherings, right? So they're meeting both informally and formally. What mattered wasn't the kind of meeting that it was, but the necessity of gathering with God's people for worship. That's what mattered. The rise of technology has only exacerbated the downward trend of people not being physically present in the church. No need to ever show up when you can attend church online. It's convenient, Yet God did not call us to live comfortable and convenient lives. Instead, he called us to be a committed community, not a comfortable and a a convenient community. The essence of being the church is being together. We see that word in verses 44 and 46. We can't say that we're a meaningful part of a church without regularly and physically gathering with the church. What's a team that never shows up to play? It's no longer a team. A player who never shows up for the team is no longer a player for that team. Being a committed community means that we're committed to regularly and physically gathering together as a community. Often when I talk to those looking for a church, one of the things that they mention that they're looking for is for deep community. 
You hear it often. Deep community. Friends, verses 42 through 47 shows us very clearly what deep community looks like. OBC will have deep community as long as it's not superficial, nor shallow, but substantive, like we've just seen. So members of OBC, in what ways might this passage actually reorient the kind of commitment that you have toward one another? A commitment not based on comfort or convenience, but rather a commitment that's based upon your commonality in Christ. For those visiting, when you're looking for a church, do verses 42 through 47 come to mind? You know, when you're visiting, is this like you whip out Acts 2, 42 through 47? This is what I'm looking for right here. Is that the first place that you go? Why not? If it's not, I want to encourage you to look there. Might you be looking for a community that won't ultimately give you what you're looking for? Right? Because oftentimes we'll look for things that in reality we don't actually need. And so let this actually calibrate your mind toward really what you need because God is actually showing us what we need. Where might your thinking need to change in order to align with God's expectations for this community? Often we want depth without devotion. But depth without devotion breeds superficiality. Devotion without depth produces shallow Christians. However, true devotion to these very things that we have just seen right here, that the early church devoted themselves to, true devotion to these things will produce deep Christians. They will. They will. This is the kind of community that we want to be. It's the kind of community that we will inevitably, that will inevitably care for one another, as we're going to see in our next point. A converted community will be a committed community that seeks to care for the needs of their own. Look at point number three, a caring community. Another proof that God's new covenant blessing of the Spirit has come is how the Spirit-created community cares for one another. It's how they care for one another. Look at verses 44 and 45. It says, Now all the believers were together, and they held all things in common. Okay, well, what does it look like to hold all things in common? Verse 45. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, to our capitalistic ears, this, this does not sound right. This is downright backwards. But what they're getting at, I think, right here, what Luke is describing isn't some kind of Christian socialism where distribution is required. That's not what he's getting at. <laughs> We're going to see that throughout the books. This is not what Luke is getting at. Instead, Luke is showing us that the economy of the church is not like that of the world. It's not like that of the world. What's emphasized is that these early Christians did this voluntarily. I mean, just notice the little important phrase, as any had need. That's voluntary. They weren't commanded to do so, but did it as a response to the work of the Spirit in their life. And we see this kind of thing actually foreshadowed in the Old Testament, where the people of God in Deuteronomy 15 were called to cancel debts and to provide for the poor among their people. It's an, it's an ideal picture of the community of God. And in Luke's day, the rich controlled most of the wealth. Yet the rich in the church 
distribute their wealth to provide for those in need. Very different from the way that the world does things. Why do they do this? Because they've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. This is a tangible expression of the fruit of the Spirit in those who've repented and believed in Jesus. In fact, John the Baptist declares this very thing in Luke chapter 7, actually Luke chapter 3, verses 7 through 14, when he says this. He says that sharing with those in need is the fruit of, of repentance. It's a fruit of repentance. One marker of a repentant community is that they're generous. That's not normally what we would think of as a, a marker of, repentant, of a repentant life. They're generous and how they care for one another. And this is primarily speaking about those within the church, at least this context is. So brothers and sisters, I just want to commend and encourage all of you. I think you do an incredible job with this. We've only been in existence for one month, and you've done a phenomenal job with this. Whether it's physical needs that need to be provided for by providing meals, or whether it's even financially, providing for someone to be able to, to go and to do certain things. You're, you have done this excellently. You have provided for those that have had need and as needs have arisen within the congregation. You've done this well and you're continuing to model for the watching world what a spirit indwelt community actually looks like. And so I praise God for you all in that. You're doing an incredible job at that. Now sure, right? We may think that we need to have a large benevolence you know, ministry, a large benevolence section line item in our budget. But what if we're providing for each other's needs so well that there's no need for even a benevolence line for those within the church? Because the church already just provides that anyway. We can't care for one another ultimately if we don't know each other though. And so one of the ways that we know how to better care for one another is that we have to know one another. And so if you're wondering where to begin with being generous, begin by getting to know one another. Begin by learning one another. As our relationships grow, our awareness of needs will grow as well. A couple of practical examples of how to gain awareness within OBC. Consider setting aside funds in your personal budget. I think Brad had mentioned this a couple weeks ago when he preached on this same passage. Consider setting aside funds in your personal budget to bless others as you hear of needs. As genuine needs arise, right? as they come up, Post about those needs in your Bible study group chats, right? You have that group chat on Church Center. You can post in there. The, the church that we came to in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, would actually send out an email. So you could like email the entire church and you'd be getting these emails all the time. Some emails were quite hilarious. Not because their need was funny, but just because of the things that they were asking for. Well, I guess that was needy. But uh, some odd needs, I'll say that. Um, but one of the ways that we sought to do that was just by having a, an email that everybody could send um, a message to that if they had a need arise, people can seek to meet that need. That's one way that we may look at trying to provide needs in the future. As scholarships are needed for events or retreats and other things that are coming up, consider supporting those in need of a scholarship. Consider supporting that way. All of these are examples of being a church that seeks to be aware of the needs going on around them. And so all of this sounds ultimately like a healthy family. Why? Because a healthy family provides for the needs of their own. That's what we are. We're the family of God. A converted community is going to be a committed 
community that is committed to caring for the needs of one another, which is compelling to the world, our final point. A compelling community. The final characteristic of this community of the king is that it's compelling to the world. In verse 43, it says that everyone was filled with awe or fear at the wonders and signs done by the apostles. Now, that's not just speaking about those inside the church. Everyone is literally speaking about everyone. It's also speaking about those outside the church. Verse 47 says that the early church enjoyed the favor of all the people. Once again, not only those inside, but those outside. So much so that every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. What do we learn? We learn that a community that prioritizes and practices verses 42 through 47 is a compelling community. It's compelling to a world that is bent on living for itself and ultimately left broken and empty. Often we think providing better programming or music or small groups or relevant sermon series are ultimately going to give the people what they want so that they can return. But as one author put it, you can't outworld the world. You can't outworld the world. The world will always be more attractive. It's going to be always be more attractive alternative than the church. And what if the problem isn't necessarily our lack of providing an attractive service, but that what we're doing isn't what's attractive in the first place, might we have prioritized the wrong things rather than verses 42 through 47? As we read in Jamie Dunlop's book, whenever we were meeting as a core group together, we read in Jamie Dunlop's book, The Compelling Community, how ironic that in the name of reaching the world, some churches have embraced a consumeristic approach that only encourages self-oriented concern. That's a scorcher. (laughs) The church can often spend so much time and money seeking to be relevant when it needs to remain faithful to verses 42 through 47. It needs to remain faithful to what the Lord has called them to do. In these verses, we see that this community life serves as the true soil for gospel growth. One of the greatest assets that we have in evangelism, of being attractive to the world, compelling to the world is actually one another. Now, I'm not speaking about personal evangelism. There's going to be a lot of time for that in the book of Acts. I'm speaking really about corporate evangelism. If you're ministering to a non-Christian neighbor and you're inviting them over, consider inviting another member of the church. What's helpful about that is it creates multiple touch points with that non-Christian to Christians to be able to speak into their life so that you're not the only person that can now follow up with them. You've got another person that can actually follow up with them and meet with them regularly. Whether it's inviting them on Sunday afternoon to see what God's people are all about, or even just how in how you talk about the church. Is it a place that when someone hears you talk about the church, they actually want to visit because of how you speak about gathering with the saints? Is it a place that they want to come because of the way that you speak? One of the greatest evidences to the gospel that we have is one another. And as we minister to our non-Christian neighbors, we have to remind ourselves that it's not our effort, it's not our ingenuity that will ultimately add to our number. What does verse 47 say? The Lord added to their number. It's ultimately up to God. We're to be faithful to do these things, to use one another, but the reality is is that it's ultimately the Lord that brings the growth. He is the one who adds to 
our number. Growing outwardly as a church happens as we grow inwardly as a church. You think of like coals in a fireplace. When you spread out those coals, they're not as hot. When you put them together, they burn, right? We become attractive. We put off that heat of the gospel as we grow inwardly so that others outwardly may see it and give glory to God. Because the commonality that we have in Christ, we are able to do these kinds of things. The community of the king is one committed to the glory of God and the good of one another. And friends, that is compelling. Is this the kind of community that you're committed to seeing? Is this the kind of community that you're looking for? Let's pray together. Father, we give praise to you because we in and of ourselves cannot produce this kind of community. Lord, it is only by your work in giving us the Holy Spirit indwelling in us that we can actually live like a spirit-created community that you have called us to be. And so, Lord, we pray that you would have mercy on us as we seek to strive for these things. Lord, we pray that we would be characterized by them. Lord, we pray that we would die to self and lay aside any selfish desires that we may have to want to try to make the community about us. And Lord, instead, we pray that you would give us an increasing selflessness to pursue the good of one another in the glory and the fame of Christ's name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What better way to conclude our service than to give praise to the one who actually created this community.